This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edia 6. Check out the new Edia 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? I'm Gordon Burkell and this is The Cutting Room. Today is part two of my interview with Jeff Bartz, who's head of the HBO editing department for documentaries. And afterwards, no one's gotten our forward film review this week, so we're going to be picking up on that. Also, we have a surprise wedding announcement sent to us, our first. And we're actually doing a double dose of Cutting Room this week, so if you've downloaded this episode, wait a few minutes and you might be able to download another episode in which we interview Avid's Angus Mackay and Morgan Spurlock's producing partner, Jeremy Chilnick. But in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Jeff Bartz. But that's editing, the elimination of all but the essential. So in The Art of uh, Documentary, you talk about searching out the story while watching the rushes. How yeah. do you do that? It, it varies from film to film. I mean, like with the story of Boy Interrupted, you kind of knew that this was the story of a boy that had committed suicide and the, and the, the, the climax, or near the climax, was going to be the story of his death. So he has sort of a sense of what everybody calls the arc of the story. Mm -hmm. For me, it was important to also figure out a way to make the ending of the film not utterly miserable. <laughs> and they had all this footage of them chopping down this tree, and it was never clear how they were going to use it. They created this memorial. And it, it felt to me like somehow you needed to st I needed to establish early on that image of the tree being falling and the, and the initials of the boy being carved in the tree so that at the end that log could be put into the barn that was dedicated to his memory. So the film had some sort of hopeful, not upbeat, but it didn't end in utter despair. But then there are other stories like the story of an animal rights investigation. Like I, I cut a film called Death in the Factory Farm that ended up in a trial. And uh, so that you knew that, that this investigation was part one and then the trial was going to be part two. And the question of the trial was, how do you make trials interesting? Because trials inherently are just utterly boring. <laughs> <laughs> They're really hard to... Because I watched that, and uh, you made it, it felt almost like a uh, legal drama as unfolding, like really well structured, almost like a fiction legal drama unfolding. The trial part of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm glad you felt that way, because, you know, if you watch the dailies, these things, I don't know if you've ever been to a trial, but they're really, really dull. The strategy that we had there was to, even though we were on the side of the animal rights guy, mm -hmm. theoretically, when we cut the trial, you had to cut it f fair to both sides. And to me, that would make it much more interesting because mm -hmm. it's an interesting, here's a, uh, an animal rights activist being tried in a f court in a farm town, you know, and uh, it's a pretty amazing situation where you have something that's that nitty-gritty happening, mm -hmm. you know, in a, little, in a little town like that. The real issue with that film was the whole story was made up of undercover footage, mm -hmm. almost, you know. And there was just hours and hours of this stuff that he shot off of this hidden camera that he wore in his clothes. And how do you take that and take these images and make a real story out of that, you know? Fortunately, he, he had one specific thing he was looking for, the hanging mm -hmm. of the pigs. 
So that gave us uh, a bit of a hook to, to hold his dramatic archon because either he was going to achieve that or he wasn't, and if he didn't, he would fail. Uh, yeah. How did you deal with the? Because in that film, there's some pretty gruesome footage. Yeah. How do you separate yourself and remain focused on the story and the structure of the film because it's so gruesome? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've I've worked on some really <laughs> grisly films over over the years. I I don't know why this has happened because I'm actually kind of a goofy guy. But but a lot of films I've cut have been very down mm -hmm. and. Uh, one of the very first films I cut, like the, I think the second film I worked on was about the bombing of Hiroshima. The, the footage was um, had been hidden for 25 years, hidden, been hidden, been kept under lock and key by the government, and uh, it was finally released. And a uh, producer bought it and asked me and another guy to cut it. And uh, you know, it was just awful to look at it. But you know, after a while, you're able to just treat it as a part of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't Certain pe and there's a lot of people that can, could not do that. I've always been able to do that. I guess in the case of the animal rights films, I just sort of adopt the same attitude that the animal rights activist does. You know, he hates being there, mm -hmm. but he feels it's for the, you know, it's for the good of the animals ultimately. He actually has to participate in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, he sort of. Well, what I what I remember, he sort of doesn't like. He's there for it, but he doesn't actually kill the pigs in front of the camera that we see at least. Yeah, but he participates in, in the manhandling of the mm -hmm. pigs, which, um, especially the little pigs, piglets, yeah. that, uh, you know, it, to me was even more gruesome than the, the execution of those pigs. And that was one of the things that, that we hoped to bring out was there was the, the one grisly thing he was looking for, which was the execution of the pigs by hanging. But the day-to-day -day activities of running that farm, to me, were even worse in mm -hmm. some ways than, than that. And we had a lot of footage like that, but we had to, we had to re-interview him to explain exactly what was going on in each sequence so that we, we'd had something to, to use to um, narrate what was, you know, mm -hmm. how these farms are operated. Um, I'd like to jump to uh, Pumping Iron. Um, sure. Now you mentioned that you had 100 hours of actual film footage. Um, how did you and Larry and the director decide to bring it down to what it was? Well, basically the same way that I, I've described earlier, you know, mm -hmm. we looked, we spent, now remember this is film, mm -hmm. and there was a bunch of people involved in it, so we actually hired a projector and, uh, and, a, and a set it up in the loft of uh, the cameraman, Bob Fiore, and we screened on a big screen because it was for theatrical. All the stuff, you know, uh, over and over and over again, and some of it was multiple cameras so you were watching. <laughs> there, there's, the, there's the continuity time and then there's the multiple mm -hmm. camera time, which in this case I think there were five cameras, so it's like five times as much stuff as you have to l watch to cover the same event. Uh, and, you know, th th and they weren't linked up like they are in Abbott's now, you had, they were, you had to actually watch each one of them separately. There were two big challenges. One was what was going to be the tone of the film, because it was cut during an era where cinema verite was still pretty much king. And there were the rules of verite filmmaking back then that supposedly you weren't supposed to use music, you weren't supposed to use narration, you, they really tried to keep interviews to a minimum, and you basically, the idea was to create a film out of just the dailies mm -hmm. and the experience of what you get from the dailies. 
the classic guy nowadays is Fred Wiseman. Mm -hmm. Back then there was the Maisel Brothers and Penny Baker and whatnot. We eventually, Larry and I, decided that, that this was going to really hurt the film, that if we went in that purest route, it was going to take a lot of the fun and, sp and spirit out of the film. So we started cutting with music. That was one big thing. And the other one was we had tons of footage from the professional bodybuilding competition. That was between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno. Mm -hmm. And like a half ton of footage from this amateur bodybuilding contest. These two things went on in parallel. They trained in parallel and then they went over there to South Africa and there was one contest, the amateur, followed by the professional. If you, if you cut the film it, as the chronology actually was, it was just so boring <laughs> to watch. You know, you see a bunch of guys train, you see another bunch of guys train, you see them all get on the plane, there's one contest and then there's another contest and that is, is a killer structure. Mm -hmm. We really didn't quite know how to get around it. And we all then went on a vacation. And a month later we came back and something clicked among one of us. It's not quite clear exactly who came up with it. Where we realized that the amateur contest didn't have to be done literally. And it could be taken as a, a, a like a mini story, really compressed and folded into the bigger story of the professional competition, the competition between mm -hmm. Arnold and Louis. That was the big breakthrough in that film. But, you know, it's like one of those mysteries, exactly how you solve that structural problem. Because mm -hmm. if, if we hadn't solved it, the film wouldn't have worked. Now, was it originally going to be about just focus on Arnold and Lou? Or was it well, going to be about a group of... It was, no, it was supposed to be like a year in the, in the life of these bodybuilders who were kind of bizarre creatures back then. Mm -hmm. and, and the director was just as interested in the amateurs as he was in the professionals. Although he, he knew George Butler, the director, knew that Schwarzenegger was going to be a superstar. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was his calling card for raising money. And he was clearly going to be the star. I mean, he just had this incredible charisma that nobody else had. It was, n it was always going to be about the whole spectrum of bodybuilding. In fact, there's stuff we left out. We left out there were these kind of Buddhist bodybuilders that, <laughs> that we didn't get into. And then there was a lot of stuff that they staged between an actor named Bud Court, who was mm -hmm. Uh, kind of popular back then, very skinny guy training with Arnold, but it would just seem so phony compared mm -hmm. to the rest of it that we threw that out. And basically just sort of went with the storyline and then some backstory material for you, for the main characters. There were four four characters whose backstory we, we mm -hmm. dealt with. Had it just been the competition between Arnold and Louis, it would have been much easier, but because there was this other element, we had to figure out a way to, to to rig it in, and I think it made it a richer film to be able to get it in, in there. Yeah, there's there's one scene where they're interviewing Arnold in South Africa, and he talks about tricking this. Yeah. Uh, were you, was there a discussion in the editing room about the influence that would have on his character? Sure. Because mm -hmm. were you were you guys worried that it would affect our us negatively or we would no longer support him in any way? Uh, I, th I think we just felt like it was, it was part of his character and it's part of his charm that first mm -hmm. of all he, he's open about this stuff. He th obviously takes such great glee in being able to pull practical jokes on people. He certainly was never an underdog. You weren't ro mm -hmm. rooting for him if you were rooting for him because he was an underdog. And Louis was clearly the underdog. It was just such a great moment <laughs> where he <laughs> says he's going <laughs> to trick him. that 
there was there was never any question yeah. we were not going to use it. Now you cut this originally. Was it cut on a Steenbeck or a Movial? Movial. Uh, Steenbeck. Now, if you cut it nowadays on an Avid, do you think there'd be a difference in the approach you would take for the film or the structure of the film? That is a really good question. I've I've thought about that a lot. I, you know, I don't know. I. Digital editing machines make certain techniques so much easier. Bef you know, in, in the film days, if you wanted to do something as simple as a freeze frame, it was a big deal. You had to mark the frame with a grease pencil, then, th th then find the original negative, take both the marked work print and the original negative to an optical house where they had a special projector that would make this freeze frame. It would take a week for it to come back. Now you press a button and you get a freeze frame in like a second, uh, and the you know all these other effects and whatnot. Would that have, it, would that ability to be more fluid with all this other stuff, which is kind of extraneous to the story, make a difference? It probably would affect it stylistically a little mm -hmm. bit, but I don't think it would have affected the overall real structural approach, meaning folding the one story inside the other mm -hmm. and taking the back stories and introducing them when we did. It, it probably would have paced slightly slightly faster than it is now, mm -hmm. but uh, oh, it's very hard to say. Yeah. It really, really is hard to say. All right, so Lauren. Yes. That was my interview. That was part two of my interview with Jeff Bartz. Very cool. Part three is coming next week. After this, if, you want, if people want, they can download the next part two our Double Dose of Cutting Room, which has Angus Mackay and Jeremy Chilnick. I don't think they can handle it. I don't know if they can. As uh, long as a triple dose, it's like three different people yeah. that you're asking questions. Whoa, that's a lot of people. If this was alcohol, people would be getting very hammered. Oh, they'd be... Your, your ears are going to get pumped. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm just going to change the subject. Hmm. Yeah, Tiff is finished. And yeah. something didn't. Something weird happened this week. No one got our forward film review. That's not weird. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it, I didn't think it was that difficult. Well, I d uh, yeah. Well, I did just because I don't know. There's something in my brain that won't allow me to remember anything about this film ever. Mm. I um, no matter how many times I watch it, I only rem remember stills mm. here and there from it. Maybe I see the first time I watched it. I was like, eh, that's all right. And then a friend of mine made me watch it a few years later, and I was like, that's genius. Yeah, I think it... Um, I think people were pumping it up the first time I saw it. They were like, yeah. this is the greatest comedy you'll ever see. Oh, oh go Oh, dear. Well, along with that clue, I'll give you another one. Are you ready? I think so. And uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a little bit more blue of a clue. Blue's Clues. Um, last week's clue was Rugs, Drugs, and Thugs. And this week, it's Doper Has Big Balls. And it's not the inappropriate one. Well, don't say that. Okay. Let's just leave it. Alright, well, how can they get this to us? Okay, so the usual ways. You can email info at artoftheguillotine.com You can tweet, which is at artguillotine on Twitter. Or you can Facebook us, facebook.com slash artguillotine. Okay. Now, just a side note, we are planning on doing the Movember. 
as November, a group. Yeah. Uh, Richard has said he will grow a mustache. Has he? I said I will grow a mustache, as has Amon, who's who, who's helping us right now. And Tej, I haven't heard back from yet. Oh, Tej, come on. So, but he's also in Florida with his family, so. Well, I'll contact him in Florida and find out what's going on here. Yeah, so we're, we're hoping to raise some money for prostate cancer, uh, to battle prostate cancer, not to support it. Yeah, that's kind of the side that we're taking on <laughs> We're trying something different. Yeah. Uh, and part of it is we're going to grow ridiculous mustaches. Um, Maybe Buster can too. And we're going to set it up on the webpage so that our our uh, members can decide what kind of mustache we can grow. Yeah. So if you want to see uh, Tage with a handlebar mustache, yeah, you just have to vote for it. Uh, that's going to be up at just before November, but I'm giving you guys a heads up. That's awesome. I don't know before uh, we close that off. Have you decided if the tally adds up to a certain amount if you'll finally reveal a photo of yourself online. Uh, we've been talking about that. We're thinking if we raise a certain amount of money, I will reveal my face. Uh, otherwise, it might just with be... A with a mustache. Disaster of a mustache. Otherwise, it might just be a really close-up of my mustache. Which I think is really lame. So, um, I will put Vote down with your... Uh, with your, your wallet, yeah, yeah. your checkbook. I will put in the first donation, and but tell me what the amount is that we have to hit. Um, we haven't come to one yet. Well, then you just need to say it right now. Come up with it. Go. Three hundred dollars. Oh my gosh. Okay, people, we need to get this over three hundred dollars for prostate cancer research, and I'm willing to throw in the first forty. So. uh Who's who's got my back on this one? We should just jack it up to a grand. Let's no, it's done. You said yeah. three hundred, done. And I tell you, if what date do they need to figure? I guess you have to figure this out by November first. The type of mustache I'm gonna grow? No, the three hundred dollars. If we're gonna hit the three hundred dollars by then. No, no, November first it starts. So as of November first, you have to put forty dollars in. Yeah, no, but you're chronicling the whole yeah, yeah, growth, it's gonna be on right? the site, yeah. So to get a, a full picture of you, you need to hit 300 before November 1st. Well, I, th I thought it would be, we would take a photo each day and then I would crop it. And then it's the second we hit 300, I would stop cropping. So lame, so lame, so lame, so lame. Well, if we can hit 300 before November 1st, then we will see a full face chronicled all the way through. And I will chronicle Buster's mustache also. Now, that said, you and I have to do a quick aside, so let me pause it. Okay, so we, what you probably won't hear because it'll be a sharp cut is we've paused and have a long discussion and we still don't know about Boston. We're it's, still working on it. it. We're very close to saying, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it looks pretty good. I might come to Boston, which I would love to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we should, what we'll do is we'll try to solidify that in the next day or two and I'll quickly put up a podcast so everyone knows. Yep. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it all goes okay. I, we've only just discussed this, the two of us, so I may not be well, going. We've been but we'll been talking see. about it for weeks. And I know, but not with for me to go too. Yeah, I know I'm not the most important part, but I kind of am. So yeah, yeah. Uh, what I'll do is I'll send a few emails out to some Boston people too, and see if we can get uh, cool. a pub selected. All right, that'd be fun. I think we're leaning towards this. That's also Halloween weekend. 
there you go. All that aside, last time we had a pub night, uh, we met a wonderful young man, and uh, we just got an email from him informing us of his uh, engagement. Congratulations. So this is our first Art of the Guillotine engagement announcement that's not Richard. Congratulations. Monty Bass. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, is it, so this is Monty from LA, yeah. not our last one. Oh, sorry, from our, the LA. The last one that night. both of us did. Yeah. Monty. Monty mentioned that at the pub night. That's awesome. Congratulations, Monty. Sorry, I wasn't making the connection. So, so much happening. I know. Um, if I'm you so proud of this little community. Yeah, if you uh, make sure to make sure to follow us so that you can help choose what type of mustache Richard, myself, possibly Tej, grow. Mm -hmm. uh, this whole time, Nina and Lauren will be commenting on it. Yes. And giving inappropriate comments. No, we'll be giving a play-by-play. Okay, play by play. Yeah. Keep an eye on all those whiskers. Yeah, so what I'm going to do, we're going to wrap this one up because we got another podcast we got to record right now. I know. Back to back. Crazy time. Like the World Series in 92-93. All right. That's for Toronto folk. Yeah. All right. I'd like to thank Jeff Bartz. I'd like to congratulate Monty Bass. Yay, Monty. I'd like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. Brickell. And if you know the Forward Film Review, make sure to send it in. Reminder, the first one was Rugs, Drugs, and Thugs. Second one, Doper Has Big Balls. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.